and I don't understand why we even have a debt limit. It's completely meaningless, and it's just a way for these moronic politicians to play their stupid, you know, leverage games and try to gain political points. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Tuesday, May 30th. Today, I'm joined by Wall Street sage Bill Cohan to discuss the finale of Succession, how the ending of the show compares to real-life stories of the Murdochs and the Redstones, and whether Tom would actually make a good CEO. And later, we get into the debt ceiling insanity, why Washington can't get rid of it once and for all. All that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope you all had a restful Memorial Day. I'm Ben Landy, enjoying my last week here in the big chair, waiting for Peter Hamby to come back. And I'm thrilled, as always, to have the legendary Bill Cohan on the program. Welcome. It's great to be here, Ben, with the legendary Ben <laughs> Landy. And I'm sorry for my voice. It's not so great today. I don't know why. I, I, Bill, you always have such an incredible baritone. We'll, uh, we'll excuse you. You get one day off. We got a lot of pollen here in the New York area right now. Bill, I want to talk to you about some succession drama on Wall Street. But first, I, well, let's talk about succession, the show. You were actually a consultant on the first season. What did you think about how they brought the show to an end? Uh, well, Ben, I thought, as usual, you know, the acting was superb. Um, the sets were superb. The writing uh, was great. The narrative ended up being, for me... A little predictable, the thought of, spoiler alert, Tom Wamsgams, uh, you know, being the successor as opposed to Cousin Greg, who was my personal choice, uh, you know, let alone one of the kids. Uh, I, I didn't love that. It just sort of was played on the sort of idea of a cliche of, somebody who just sort of manages up, uh, you know, winning the day. And, um, uh, you know, he, he frankly, you know, Tom, he wasn't even very good at managing up, and he certainly never showed me any uh, leadership or management skills, uh, nothing that would ever uh, recommend him to be, you know, the CEO of the company, except for the fact that he'll do whatever the new owners want him to do, which, again, is cynical and pathetic. But uh, I certainly enjoyed it, Ben, and, you know, I'll miss it. Well, you know, what do you think? Well, I agree the show could have done a better job of showing us that, that Tom was actually competent to step into that role. But I sort of appreciate that they took the, the narrative to a logical, if, you know, slightly predictable conclusion, having Tom step in it actually sort of makes sense that that he, um, you know, in a lot of ways, Tom is sort of a rational CEO for our time. Of course, the model executive is going to be someone like Bob Iger, who is both an operator and a visionary and sort of a celebrity in his own right. There are only so many people out there like Bob Iger, like Rupert Murdoch, obviously, who, who the show is inspired by. But more often than that, you do see CEOs who are sort of interchangeable modular parts, as Shiv calls Tom in the, uh, in the finale. You know, they're either a subsidiary figure or sort of a cardboard cutout for the controlling shareholder. 
especially in media these days, they are often these sort of transitional actors whose primary task is to manage a basket full of assets in decline. You know, they're there to cut costs, to lay off employees. Tom says in this episode that his primary qualification is that he's a pain sponge. And I imagine oftentimes that is what an owner or a controlling shareholder is actually looking for, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's a very cynical thought process. And I don't think particularly accurate, really. It's more a cynic's view of what ends up happening or what kind of happens. I think that my thought was, okay, Cousin Greg, I mean, if you're going to go to the <laughs> right. ultimate go cynical position, th then the ultimate cynical position is Cousin Greg, because he's nothing but a sycophant and a aggressive climber and angler. You know, Tom just struck me as kind of pathetic, kind of in every way, not a good leader, not a good husband, not a good friend, you know, nothing. Probably a good actor, but um, so I don't know. I, I was thinking maybe, uh, Ben, the deal wouldn't happen because, you know, there's no logic for the deal. It was a stupid deal to begin with. Uh, you know, I, I appreciated the head fake of the kids all sort of getting together for a minute. But, you know, I, I also don't think it was realistic that Shiv in the end would put the Shiv in her brother. I don't know. You know, again, great show. I loved it. I'll miss it. I don't know what to do now. Sunday at nine o'clock. One thing that I found funny about the last season or so of Succession is the show definitely gets more and more explicit about the fact that the kids are really not qualified to run the business. Obviously, one of the final things that Logan says to the kids in this season is, you're not serious people, which is the sort of incredible quote that's taken on a life of its own. And, and it really hangs over everything that happens here. And it's true. None of them are qualified to run it. And I assume that that's often the case in real life examples of corporate succession, especially within families. I'm thinking about the real life Murdoch family or the Redstones, which are, of course, another inspiration for this show. Um, or maybe over at LVMH, where you've got Bernard Arnault, currently the wealthiest man in the world, clearly putting one of his sons into position to eventually succeed him. But I don't think anyone expects that he could possibly live up to what his father built. And and I presume that that's typically the case when you have a family succession in, in, in a large company such as this. Yeah, I mean, I think what you see in all of the cases that you mentioned, though, is that, you know, it was a child uh, who succeeded, or it, it seems to be succeeding the father. Obviously, Murdoch is still alive. You know, Lachlan is in the driver's seat. But, you know, who knows, ultimately, when Murdoch dies and the kids vote, it could literally turn out like this just did in succession. Sherry uh, basically stole the company from her father, uh, who didn't want her to succeed him. And he she maneuvered her way into a position when he was non compass mentis to take control of both companies and then do this merger that has not worked out uh, particularly well. Uh, LVMH, you know, there's five potential Arnaud kids. Uh, I think uh, four men and one woman or th three men and two women. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that isn't over yet because uh, Bernard Arnault extended his runway as CEO for another five years. So that, that will continue to play out. I mean, it, the thing that I think was unique about this is that, you know, uh, 
the, the father died unexpectedly. His wishes were ambiguous uh, as to who should succeed him. And then the kids fought over it and, of course, uh, committed, you know, fratricide, uh, so to speak. And, uh, uh, you know, by not stopping the merger, they could not uh, make it so that one of them succeeded their father. And you're right, they were not qualified to do it. I mean, they just... Uh, prove that over and over and over again and he knew and he knew that logan knew that and that was sort of one of the great sadnesses of the show was that he loved his kids or he was told by jesse that logan roy loved his kids so he loved his kids and he was you know continuously disappointed by them and so uh we have this sort of very shakespearean kind of ending you know with Tom taking over, you know, but again, he, he's taking over to be, you know, the Matson's lackey. So, I mean, it's sort of like a meaningless position. He has no power. He has no ownership. Um, sure. It reminded me of Linda Yaccarino stepping in to, um, quote unquote, run Twitter under Elon Musk. That's right. There, There's the good analogy. They must have anticipated that, Ben. Well, Bill, I want to get your Wall Street perspective on, on other parallels. You know, in the show, I, I think that it's true that Logan probably never really anticipated giving this business to his kids. He couldn't really see beyond his own death. He thought he was going to run forever. I feel that reminds like me a Summer lot Redstone. of Summer Redstone. Absolutely. Rupert Murdoch, who is, I believe, 93, but keeps telling people that his mother lived to be over 100. He obviously is not thinking about dying anytime soon. You also see the same thing playing out with guys like Bob Iger, who came back for a second tour at Disney, Howard Schultz, who's returned to Starbucks multiple times, or even your, your pal Jamie Dimon, who um, doesn't seem to be in any great rush to find a successor at J.P. Morgan, even though clearly they need to have some kind of succession planning in place there. Yeah, it turns out, Ben, that uh, succession is, of course, one of the most important things that a CEO does. And... It's amazing how often it gets screwed up. Bob Iger, I mean, you know, we've highlighted recently how James Gorman at Morgan Stanley seems to be doing it right. You know, my old firm, Lazard, I don't know what they were thinking or doing over there. You know, they've sort of named, they've named Peter Orzag the successor. It took them two weeks to do it after, you know, words started coming out uh, that, you know, something was up there. But if you, if you look at the details of what they actually filed uh, in the 8K, Ken Jacobs is going to not only be executive chairman of the company, but he's also uh, going to continue to report to the board and he's going to continue to stick around and do deals. So if I'm Peter Orzag, I'm like hating that because the old CEO is hanging around the hoop as my boss, uh, without a boss, and still doing deals, that's not good succession planning. Uh, Jamie Dimon has let so many possible CEOs leave. And of course, you know, my friend Jack Welch uh, obviously orchestrated his succession and then regretted his choice. So, and then, you know, sniped at Jeff Immelt for a few years afterwards. Apparently, what should be uh, a relatively easy uh, an important decision, what should be the f main focus of a CEO, you know, from the get-go, who his successor will be, has gotten much more complicated over time and uh, continues to get screwed up, even though you'd think it wouldn't. 
Is part of the problem that CEOs these days are just living longer and longer? I mean, like, uh, if you have the money, 70 is the new 50. You know, Jamie Dimon doesn't need to go anywhere. Rupert Murdoch is in his 90s and uh, obviously not as healthy as he once was, but it feels like the increased longevity for the super rich is definitely a factor, I presume, in, in, in why succession has gotten so much more complicated. Well, in the, in the case of the Redstones at Paramount Global and uh, the Murdochs at News Corp and Fox, the problem there is that they control the votes even though they don't control the economics. The biggest shareholder of Paramount Global is uh, Warren Buffett, who owns 16% of the stock of the economics, but it's another Sherry guy Redstone. who has his own succession uh, difficulties. Yes, but but I think he, he's he's figured that out. He's named his successors um, in various parts of his business. Uh, uh, but Sherry Redstone controls eighty percent of the votes. So these people with the super voting position in these companies, they they can't be challenged. They are challenged. They have absolute power, and that's not healthy for any corporation. And you saw where absolute power got, uh, you know, Fox as a result of, you know, the settlement with, you know, Dominion and, you know, whatever comes next in that additional lawsuit. And the, uh, there was a really interesting article in the Times yesterday about the machinations that occurred before Fox came to the settlement with Dominion. And it just reeks of the problem of governance at that company where, uh, nobody's going to challenge Rupert. He's got absolute power, and uh, he is happy to exercise it. Even Lachlan, you know, can't control the guy. So that's just not good for that's not good corporate governance, period. And so that's a big part of what's happening. In addition to, you know, people, it's true, wealthy people are finding ways to live longer. I don't know whether they have ice in their veins or what, but they're, uh, yeah. And so they're just using using their money and their power to get their way on a continuous basis. All right, let's take a quick commercial break. And Bill, when we get back, I want to ask you about the debt ceiling deal. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back. Bill, it looks like we have the contours of a deal between Biden and Kevin McCarthy to raise the debt ceiling. I've been looking over the bullet points here, which is basically capping spending, fiddling with a few small things like IRS funding and clawing back COVID money. There's something in there about getting Biden to commit to things he has already committed to, like unfreezing student loan repayments, all of which seems kind of underwhelming to me. And in a way, it's sort of shocking, actually, that there was so much high drama around this showdown in the first place. I assume that Wall Street is pleased that it looks like something is going to go through here, assuming that McCarthy's far right flank doesn't throw a tantrum. But what was the point of all of this? In retrospect, it feels like it was so much mess for nothing. That's a great question, Ben, that I don't have an answer to. Uh, To me, it's just the very definition of insanity, thinking you'll get a different outcome, even though you're repeating the same behaviors over and over again. I mean, who plays Russian roulette with our credit rating and our our reputation for for paying their debts, uh, our debts as they become due? The the risk of defaulting on our debt payments is the most foolish weapon of mass destruction that you can play with, and yet they keep playing with it over and over again. I mean, the Republicans who uh, seem to only know fiscal responsibility when there's a Republican in the White House. And when there's a Democrat in the White House, they'll do anything to blow up uh, that, Repu- that, uh, that Democrat's, uh, you know, chances to succeed in the office. And, you know, as Mitch McConnell said, his main goal with Barack Obama was to make him a one-term president. I mean, they'll just play politics with anything. And, you know, it's extremely distressing that they play politics with, you know, our credit rating and our role, at, uh, you know, and our reputation for being fiscally responsible and, you know, paying our debts as they become due. One of the great assets of this country is that we're the world's uh, a currency and that we don't default on our debts. And to play with that reputation is insanity to me. I don't understand it, Ben. I don't understand why they keep doing it. I don't understand why it continues to happen. I don't understand why we even have a debt limit. It's completely meaningless, and it's just a way for these moronic politicians to play their stupid, you know, leverage games and try to gain political points. Um, so you're you're asking me if I get it? I don't get it. I was thinking about this, that this could be one of those situations where the uh, politicians on the far right and the politicians on the far left vote against this provision or whatever this is, this amendment or law or whatever the hell it is that they're doing. And But there's enough politicians in the middle on both sides, so it'll be extremely bipartisan, and the two, the two wing nuts on either side of the political spectrum will probably vote against it. Yeah, it's it's possible we could see a deal go through where it's um it's a combination of moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans voting together to get this thing through. I admit I, I was sort of surprised by how down the middle this compromise feels like it ended up being. There aren't that many 
big cuts. You know, they're, they're mostly keeping spending levels the same. There are a couple things in there that Democrats are going to like. Republicans obviously wanted a lot more. But Bill, to your point about insanity, I mean, this deal only suspends the debt ceiling through the end of 2024. So right after the next election, during a lame duck session, we're going to do all of this over again. And I hope that at some point Washington is able to get rid of the debt ceiling entirely. I mean, the United States really is we're the only country in the world that does this. Apparently, Denmark has something similar, but their debt ceiling is so high that it practically doesn't exist. But you're right that the incentives are such that Republicans clearly enjoy the brinkmanship and, and it gives them an opportunity to push their agenda every two years or so. And as long as those incentives are there, it's hard to imagine this thing is ever going to disappear until Democrats have full control of Congress and the White House and they have the courage to actually go ahead and, and terminate it. But so far, we haven't seen it happen. You know, one of my readers objected to my partisanship on this uh, you know, issue uh, after uh, Sunday and uh, seemed to suggest to me that the Democrats do the same thing, uh, that they play politics with the debt ceiling. Well, if they have, uh, I don't recall it. Uh, this seems to be a Republican uh, specialty, uh, again, only when there's a Democrat uh, in the White House. Uh, it's so uh, irresponsible on every level. But, you know, there are so many things right now that are irresponsible on every level, you know, the failure to limit, uh, to enact gun control legislation. I mean, I guess we're okay with some lunatic going into our schools and blowing the faces off our children, potentially blowing up our uh, reputation for financial probity is okay with the Republicans. I mean, they'll just kind of do anything to try to get their weird, weirdo agenda items, uh, you know, over the finish line. And, it's so far out of the mainstream. I mean, look, I don't see a path out of it, frankly, um, at the moment. And it's, it's extremely distressing. But, you know, I don't know what we do. Well, to the extent that you see those things as a problem and to the extent that it is a bipartisan problem, it's that is the Democrats fail to act when they have the opportunity. I mean, Nancy Pelosi led a House majority relatively recently. Democrats had the Senate, even though obviously you had Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema as sort of uh, only pseudo-Democrats, more, more like independents who were the controlling votes there. But Democrats, they keep giving up these opportunities over and over to, to change the rules so they can pass gun control, to eliminate the filibuster, to, um, to codify Roe v. Wade. I mean, we'll, we'll see if those things happen in the future, maybe under the next president or under the next Congress. But um, but for now, Bill, it, it does seem like the cycle just repeats itself. Well, and, and to your point, Ben, they haven't had the numbers in the Senate or the House, really, to the, the majorities that they need to get these things through. You know, under Trump, of course, they didn't have the majorities to override a veto. And with Biden, you know, they barely have what they need, especially with Manchin and Cinema who, you know, behave in their own crazy ways. Uh, to 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 accomplish these things that really should be no brainers, but can't can't, can't get done. I mean, literally, I, I it's incredible they can ba ban books uh, in schools. Uh, books can get banned more easily than guns. Explain that, Ben. Listen, we got to leave it there. But uh, thanks as always. Appreciate your perspective and your insight on Wall Street, on politics, on everything. It's always a pleasure. And thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, 
Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.